In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. And he called the light day. And he called the darkness night. And on day two, God separated the skies from the seas. And on day three, he separated the seas from the dry land. And on day four, he filled the heavens with the sun, the moon, and the stars. And on day five, he filled the seas with sea creatures. He filled the skies with birds. And on day six, after filling the dry ground with animals, God took a breath. And he said to himself, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And he says this to them after he creates them. The Bible says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God blesses his people, and then he gives them a job, a commission. Rule likewise, rule like me. Bless the created realm. Well, if you're familiar with the story, Genesis 3 comes, and instead of being instruments of blessing to the world, Adam and Eve usher in curse and death. And things get worse and worse, Corruption increases until every thought and inclination of man is toward wickedness. And so God sends his floods of judgment over all the earth, over all living creatures. But he protects Noah and his family. And when they come out of the ark, we hear familiar words. It says in Genesis 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Every living creature is placed under your authority. Using the same words to Adam, he blesses and then he gives them a commission, a job. Rule likewise, be a blessing to the whole created realm. But any optimism of a fresh start quickly is dashed because the Tower of Babel happens. And man joins together to create a name for themselves, a rule for themselves. And again, God judges those people who choose curse rather than blessing. And he scatters them across the earth. But then in the very next chapter we hear something new. God appears to Abraham, and he says this, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Again, God is blessing his people, but this time, his purposes, which have come to this point in the, in the form of a job description, now come to Abraham in the form of a promise. You will be a blessing. And this promise that he gives to Abraham is reiterated to Abraham's son, Isaac. He says this in Genesis 26. I will give your offspring all these lands and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. And then God says it again to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. He says in Genesis 28, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. But then we come to Joseph and things aren't looking as we would thought that they might, given God's promises. This is Abraham's great grandson. 
And despite these amazing global promises to Joseph's heritage, things aren't looking so good. A couple weeks ago, we read that his brothers sold him into slavery, into Egypt. And despite that, he started to, things started to look like they were turning around in Potiphar's house. But then last week, we read about how Potiphar's wife falsely accused him. And he found himself uh, unjustly condemned to prison. And that's where our text begins today. In Genesis 40 through 41, it begins in a dungeon. Where there seems to be an obvious gap between what God has promised and what actually seems to be happening to his people. If you would turn with me to Genesis 40, we'll be reading a lot this morning. We're going to cover two chapters, the second of which is fairly lengthy. And I think that you will be benefited by pulling it out in front of you on your phone or your Bible if you have that, um, so that you can follow along. Genesis 40. After this, meaning after Joseph ends up in prison, the king of Egypt's cupbearer and baker offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guards in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guards assigned Joseph to them as their personal attendant, and they were in custody for some time. The king of Egypt's cupbearer and baker, who were confined in the prison, each had a dream. Both had a dream on the same night, and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they looked distraught. He asked Pharaoh's officers who were in custody with him in his master's house, Why do you look so sad today? We had dreams, they said to him. But there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. In my dream, there was a vine in front of me. On the vine were three branches... As soon as it budded, its blossoms came out and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. This is the interpretation, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. You will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand the way you used to when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well for you, remember that I was with you. Please show kindness to me by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. And even here I have done nothing that they should put me in the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was positive, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. Three baskets of white bread were on my head. In the top basket were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is the interpretation, Joseph replied. The three baskets are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from off of you and hang you on a tree. Then the birds will eat the flesh from your body. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he gave a feast for all his servants, He elevated the chief cupbearer and the chief baker among his servants. Pharaoh restored the chief baker to his position as cupbearer, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But Pharaoh hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had explained to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. This is the word of the Lord. 
Father, would you bless the reading and the preaching of your word today, Jesus, that you might go forth into our hearts, settling us, settling deep down in our hearts what is true of us and what is true of you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Despite the fact that our passage begins in a dungeon, our passage is actually about freedom. Uh, the freedom that God grants his people. And so this is what I think God has for us today. This is what God wants us to hear and believe. That Jesus frees his people to hope and bless. And in Genesis 40, uh, we see the first uh, point. The love of Jesus frees us to hope. At the beginning of the story, Joseph is suffering. He's in a foreign land because of brotherly betrayal. And he's in prison because of a woman's false testimony. He's probably 28 years old at this point, And it's fair to say he's at the lowest point in his life. He's already suffered a lifetime's worth of pain and trauma and grief. But it's here that God speaks, albeit in a peculiar way. Joseph's fellow prisoners have dreams. And God gives Joseph an interpretation and the correct interpretation. And it's peculiar, I think, for a couple reasons. One, because it's through dreams. Um, and we don't typically think about God communicating that way. And two, because it's not really about Joseph. God speaks to Joseph through giving him an interpretation about other people's suffering and scenarios. And, and we would think, or we would want, maybe, if we were in Joseph's shoes, to hear a word from God about us. Lord, what about me? I'm in a foreign land I, I'm, I was unjustly condemned. What is, what is your word to me? But Joseph receives the word that God gives him. And it sparks hope for Joseph. Look at, look at verse 14. Look again there. But he says this to the cupbearer. But when all goes well for you, remember that I was with you. Please show kindness to me by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. Joseph receives God's gift of interpretation. He believes the outcome of the dream is sure to come to pass, and he's filled with hope. He's filled with hope that God might be gracious to change his circumstances like he believes he will the cupbearer, and maybe even change his circumstances through the cupbearer. Though God's word to Joseph in the prison is not specific to him, that word settles deep into Joseph's heart as a personal word from the Lord. Joseph, I see you, and I love you. Can we see the freedom that God grants Joseph when he's there and he speaks to him? Though his freedom to go and do as he wished was controlled and constrained by dungeon walls, his heart was set free to hope in a God who is with him in his suffering who reminds him that he sees him and that he loves him. What is your dungeon this morning? Perhaps like Joseph, you are suffering. Suffering in circumstances that you did not expect and maybe circumstances that you did nothing to deserve. I know that there's several families in our church who are uh, suffering under the diagnosis of a serious illness. Perhaps some uh, are, are suffering under unjust or unloving actions or words by a bully at school or at work. Maybe some of us um, had plans for our retirement years and they've been flipped on their heads uh, over the last couple of years. Or maybe you have some other form of tragic suffering. 
Or perhaps some of us this morning are suffering in a different kind of dungeon. The the dungeon of cynicism and frustration and anger over our circumstances that make talking to God about where we're at or talking to other people about where we're at feel nearly impossible. Maybe this has caused us to start walking down sinful paths um, towards pornography or slander or other sins done in secret where we're justifying our actions with our circumstances and with self-pity. Regardless of what particular cell you find yourself in this morning, God has a personal word for you. He calls you by name and he says, I see you and I love you. But how can we know? How can we know that God's word to Joseph is also his word to us? Uh, Listen to Hebrews 1.1. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him the heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The personal word of God, from God, that came through the gift of interpretation interpretation to Joseph and reassured him of his love and his providential care over him comes to you and to I in much more dramatic fashion. The private whisper spoken in an Egyptian prison actually takes on flesh and walks in first century Palestine, Israel. Jesus, who made the universe, who sustains the universe, steps into the world of curse and gives himself up to a world of suffering for us. Joseph unjustly descended into a cell against his will. Jesus, God the Son, submits his will to the Father and allows himself to be unjustly pinned to a cross, descending into the tomb and descending further into Hades itself for us, the righteous, for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Not only does Jesus see you, Jesus suffers for you. And he died for you. And through this proves his love for you. Listen to the words of Paul in Romans 8. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Wherever you are today in your life and wherever you are today in your life of faith, God has a personal word to you through Christ. I love you. I see you. Nothing can separate you from my love because of what I've done. And when we hear and believe that the love of, of the love that Jesus has for his people, it sets us free to hope no matter what our circumstances. Because the primary object of our hope is no longer the change of our circumstances, but the object of our hope is God himself. The New Testament writers Uh, do not tell us that following Jesus removes suffering from the equation. Instead, they're full of comfort that God is added to the equation and God is with us in our suffering. That we can actually rejoice and hope in suffering because God is there to comfort, to show us joy, to give us hope. So what, what might it look like to hope in suffering? One thing that we learn from Joseph is that hoping in God and suffering looks like being on the lookout for God, 
looking for him, watching for him. Looking everywhere and anywhere, seeing what God might be doing, even through our unfortunate circumstances. When we believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, we're we're believing in a personal God who speaks creation in order that we might know him and love him. Everything is a message from God to know him and love him. And that means that everything is at his disposal. Um, It's under his control. Uh, Even what seems like random or chance events, gusts of wind, dreams, things that our culture tells us are the product of, of causes and effects. God is in those and through those. And he can tell us what is most clearly seen in the gospel of his son. I see you and I love you, and I'm with you, and I know what's happening to you. Shifting back to our text, God is with Joseph, but we still have our dilemma. God has made these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the whole world is going to be blessed through his, their children, but Joseph is still in prison. At the end of this chapter, we read, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. What about the promises of God? What about the future of God's people? Let's read chapter 41. At the end of two years, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing beside the Nile when seven healthy-looking, well-fed cows came up from the Nile and began to graze among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, sickly and thin, came up from the Nile and stood beside those cows along the bank of the Nile. The sickly, thin cows ate the healthy, well-fed cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Seven heads of grain, plump and good, came up on one stalk. After them, seven heads of grain, thin, scorched by the east wind, sprouted up. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven plump, full ones. Then Pharaoh woke up, and it was only a dream. Then morning came, and he was troubled. So he summoned all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. The chief cupbearer said to Joseph, Today I remember my faults. Pharaoh was angry with his servants, and he put me and the chief baker in the custody of the captain of the guards. He and I had dreams on the same night. Each dream had its own meaning. Now, a young Hebrew, a slave of the captain of the guards, was there with us. He told us our dreams. He interpreted our dreams for us. And each had its own interpretation. It turned out just the way he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent for Joseph. And they quickly brought him from the dungeon. He shaved, changed his clothes, And went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. I'm not able to, Joseph answered Pharaoh. It is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, and here he recaps his dream, and we'll jump down to verse 24. And then he says, I told this to the magicians, but no one can tell me what it means. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams mean the same thing. 
The seven thin, sickly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven worthless, scorched heads of grain are seven years of famine. It is just as I told Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. After them, seven years of famine will take place, and all the abundance in the land of Egypt will be forgotten. The famine will devastate the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because of the famine that follows it. For the famine will be severe. Since the dream was given twice to Pharaoh, it means that the matter has been determined by God, and he will carry it out soon. So now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this. Let him appoint overseers over the land and take a fifth of the harvest of the land of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. Let them gather all the excess food during the good years that are coming. Under Pharaoh's authority, store the grain in the cities so they may preserve it as good. The good will reserve a land, uh, will reserve for the land during the seven years of famine that will take place in the land of Egypt. Then the country will not be wiped out by famine. So let's pause. We see once again God's love and God's presence are with Joseph. He gives him another interpretation, this time to Pharaoh's dreams. And and once again, God says to Joseph, I see you and I love you. And Pharaoh's response to Joseph's interpretation in these next several verses is the climax of our story here in the two chapters. After years of waiting, years of longing, Years of looking out for God and his circumstances. How is Pharaoh going to respond to Joseph? And so we read, The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And he said to them, Can we find anyone like this? A man who has God's spirit in him? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there, was no, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. You will be over my house, and all my people will obey your commands. Only I, as king, will be greater than you. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, See, I am placing you over the land. Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him with fine linen garments, and placed a gold chain around his neck. He had Joseph ride in his second chariot, and servants called out before him, Make way! So he placed him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and no one will be able to raise his hand or foot in the land of Egypt without your permission. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephaneth Paneah and gave him a wife, Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest at On. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Pharaoh's response is quite extraordinary, especially to modern ears. It sounds a bit absurd to us to think about uh, someone who's, who's over a country and who has a dream. And someone on his, we'll say, janitorial staff who has a criminal record comes to him and says, I know what your dream means. It's disaster for our country. And the president demotes his vice president and raises up this guy to, uh, to enact uh, plan save the country. That sounds, that sounds a bit crazy because for us in our times... Dreams are not a reliable form of prediction. But, but this kind of thing actually does still happen today. If someone really understands statistics, 
with diseases, or they really understand the geoscience behind climate change, uh, people in power raise them up, and they give them authority to enact, plan, save the country. So in this time, dreams were uh, a reliable and even a cherished way that they believed divinity, uh, the different gods of Egypt, spoke to people. And so Pharaoh's response of like, uh, hey, this is, this is great. Let me just give you all this power. Um, and his servants saying, this is awesome. This is a good idea. Uh, it's strange to us, but, but not maybe so much to them. But what is strange, no matter if it's their culture or our culture, is how quickly and how abruptly and how suddenly Joseph goes from a prison cell to the second in command in Egypt. Pharaoh didn't even run a background check on this guy. He, 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 he came from prison, and it almost seems like Pharaoh doesn't even look into that. It, it's, it is extraordinary. Uh, and the story slows way down for the narrator to give us these details about just how high Joseph rises. Pharaoh takes off his signet ring, his ring that gives him authority for edicts, and he puts it on Joseph's hand. He clothes, he clothes, clothes him, clothes him in uh, purple linen. And a gold chain. He gives him his second chariot. The point is that um, at the climax of the story is that God is with Joseph. And in circumstances that we didn't expect, God has risen Joseph. And though this is the climax of the story, it's not the end of the story. And the end of the story is important. So let's read through to the end. I know it's a lot of reading. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph left Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout the land of Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced outstanding harvests. Joseph gathered all the excess food in the land of Egypt during the seven years and put it in the cities. He put the food in every city from the fields around it. So Joseph stored up grain in such abundance, like the sand of the sea, that he stopped measuring it because it was beyond measure. Two sons were born to Joseph before the years of famine arrived. Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest at On, bore them to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh. He said, God has made me forget all my hardship and my whole family. And the second son, he named Ephraim and said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Then the seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in every land, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When the whole land of Egypt was stricken with famine, people cried out to Pharaoh for food. Pharaoh told all Egypt, go to Joseph, do what he tells you. Now the famine had spread across the whole region, So Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Every land came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, for the famine was severe in every land. In spite of his suffering, God blessed Joseph throughout his whole life, and the same is true here. The years of great abundance come to pass, and those years of great abundance mean great fruitfulness, even for Joseph's family, adding two sons. And then the years of famine come to pass, just as Joseph said. And and the chapter ends with this statement. It's significant. Every land 
came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, for the famine was severe in every land. Another, another translation says, all the countries came to Joseph. It's significant because it points to the broader story of Genesis, the story that we've been hearing since God spoke light into a dark world. The story uh, that we hear when God gives a commission to Adam and to Noah and then promises that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's offspring will be a blessing to all the nations. And just when the gap between reality and God's promise seems widest, seemed most unlikely in the blink of an eye, Joseph goes from prisoner to second in command, fulfilling God's promises, however unlikely they seemed to us. Joseph's life embodies the promise of God. Consider Joseph's life. No matter where Joseph found himself, the Lord blessed him and established him and freed him to bless others. In Potiphar's house, he became a blessing to Potiphar, and all that Potiphar had was blessed and increased. When he was in the prison, God blessed Joseph, and all that Joseph did was a blessing to those around him. And when Joseph rises to second in command over Egypt, God blesses Joseph, and through Joseph, Joseph is freed to bless Egypt and bless all of the nations. It was not Joseph's circumstances that determined Joseph's freedom to bless others. Rather, it was the blessing of God on him. It was God's gracious promise of blessing that freed Joseph to do good to others, even his enemies, even while suffering, even in a foreign land. How can we follow in the footsteps of Joseph? What blessing does God have for us, and what does it look like for us to turn around and bless others? As we read the rest of Genesis, and in fact, as we read the rest of the Bible, we learn something, and that is that Joseph is not the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph is not the offspring, and grain in famine is not the blessing to the nations that God has in store for the entire world. Here's what the Apostle Peter says uh, He's preaching to a crowd in Acts, and he says this to the Israelites, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, And all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. God raised up his servant, Jesus, and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. The glorious And surprising ascent of Joseph is a mere pointer to the glorious, the far more glorious, rise and blessing of Christ. Joseph goes from prisoner to second in command of Egypt. Christ goes from condemned and killed criminal to conqueror over Satan and death and rises to sit at the right hand of God the Father. At best, Joseph helped people stave off hunger and maybe gave them a few more decades of curse-filled life. But the blessing of Christ on the nations, people like us, is turning us away from the curse of death and the slavery to wickedness and turning us toward life with God, life in God, and blessedness. When we believe in Jesus, his ascension is our ascension. And his victory over sin and death is our victory over sin and death. 
The love that the Son had with the Father and the Holy Spirit for all of eternity is now love that God has for us. And it's now love that we have for God. When the blessing of Jesus becomes our blessing, Paul says that we have all blessings in the spiritual places. There is no spiritual blessing that is not yours and mine. Here are some. We are forgiven. We are not condemned, even though we sin. We're counted as holy and blameless in his sight. And we're welcomed into his family. We're given knowledge of God's purposes in the world. What's true, what's good, what's beautiful. We're given the Holy Spirit, God's very own presence, to be a down payment of our inheritance, something that we'll receive in full in the new heavens and the new earth. And we're set free. We're set free to live for and bless others. It becomes our joy to participate in God's purposes for the world, to be people whose lives are not about making money or having success or being accepted, but people whose lives are about being a conduit of Christ-centered blessing to our neighbors, to our friends, to our children, to our coworkers, to our family, and even to our enemies. Christian, you are free from pursuing the small and dull and wicked purposes that you have for your own life, and you are set free to join into God's cosmic purposes for the whole world, to bring heaven to earth through Christ, uniting all things through Jesus, even in your humble, mundane, and difficult circumstances that you find yourself in maybe this morning. It is true that sometimes, or maybe often, the reality that we live feels far away from the promises of God that he's blessing us in Christ with all blessings. But even when things seem so bleak for God's people, God's promise is true. His blessing is sure. His words will come to pass. And we, his people, are free to hope today. And we are free to bless today because of what Christ has done for us.